You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Now, if you look at it, Germany is a captive of Russia because they supply. They got rid of their coal plants. They got rid of their nuclear. They're getting so much of the oil and gas from Russia. Are they, though? Are they really? Clue, no. My guests Isabel Hilton and Peter Goodman will be discussing today's NATO summit and the day's other big stories, including the United States inexplicably escalating trade war with China, Facebook being made to pay for the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if not nearly enough, and an attempt by one Canadian neighbourhood to abolish fun. Is it really such a bad idea? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Peter Goodman, global economic correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome both. Uh, We will start tonight in Brussels and the NATO summit, which is going approximately as well as everyone expected it would. US President Donald Trump has kicked proceedings off by accusing Germany of being, quote, totally controlled by Russia, unquote, although somewhat disappointingly failed to follow that up by accusing Angela Merkel of having totally once hosted The Apprentice. Trump asserted that Germany gets 60 to 70 percent of its energy from Russia, which isn't true. He also underestimated Germany's defence spending as a percentage of GDP and overestimated America's. Um, Isabel, first of all, the evergreen question where Trump is concerned, does he actually have a plan slash 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 strategy idea at all of what he's doing or is he just saying words? Well, he's talking nonsense as usual. That's not the same thing as not having a strategy. I mean, even <laughs> if you if you have to sort of judge by him by his actions, his strategy is to destroy every alliance that the United States has spent fifty years building up, um, and and make friends with a with a with a bunch of of dictators. Uh, is that a strategy? Who knows? Uh, but that's certainly what's what what he appears the course he appears to be to be bent on. I I get very tired of. Just responding, it's like responding to a, a, a you know particularly obdurate seven-year-old who thinks the world is made in a certain way, and and you you know you you patiently explain the world is not made that way. NATO spending doesn't work like that. There isn't a massive NATO budget. Nobody owes the U.S. money. You know the money the U.S. spends on its defence, it spends on its defence, and so on and so forth. But you know what would be the point? It's not about fact. It's about pleasing these endless rallies he does back home, and you know destroying alliances. I mean, Peter, is that what this is actually about? Is this just stuff he knows plays well with a base, many of whom possibly don't really know what NATO even is? I think that's a pretty satisfying explanation with one caveat. So I I would back up and say that, yes, I think the useful frame on the Trump presidency is that he is running a reality television show. He's very good at reality television. It's the one area of his life in which he's been demonstrably successful time and again. And he gets that the shock value of making accusations, no matter how outrageous or how divorced from facts they may be, uh, that does get uh, headlines. It positions him to look uh, presidential with his particular base if they think he's supposed to be confrontational and tearing up alliances is a good thing if you've been reared on 
this idea that you know the U.S. has been played for suckers in, uh, to Isabel's point, the liberal democratic order that it essentially constructed. Uh, now, that said, the one place where he does seem to have a consistent belief is he does seem to think that bilateral trade deficits are really bad, contrary to just about every mainstream economist who will tell you that, you know, it depends on the circumstances. There are some cases where a large bilateral trade deficit does suggest that there's a problem, but in and of itself, it doesn't mean anything. And he's he's obsessed with the fact that Germany sends more stuff to the United States than the United States sends back to Germany. He's also obsessed with migration, of course, and Ms. Merkel famously opened up the borders. And this plays right into a classic Trump talking point that, you know, people on the march from other places, especially Muslim people, especially darker skinned people, you know, that's that's trouble. Now, all that said, I do think that most of what Trump does, and in this setting, I think it's consistent, is come up with ways to assure people who already believe those things back home in the United States that he is pursuing uh, that interest. Um, Isabel, is is there any kernel of a point uh, in his accusation that, that Germany's defense or Germany's contribution to NATO is compromised by what he described as its dependence on Russian energy. 60 to 70 percent, Trump said, uh, the actual figure is closer to 9 percent. Uh, but, but is that actually any kind of strategic liability? I really don't think so. I mean, obviously, everyone who's at the end of a Russian gas pipeline would be uh, would be to some extent. Well, Europe. it's quite a lot of Western Europe. Um, but then if you bear in mind that Russia's pretty much the only the only revenue that Russia earns is from selling oil and gas. You know, it would have to be a fairly suicidal move to, to cause too much trouble uh, to your major exporters. It's one thing to put pressure on the Ukraine with your energy supplies. It's another to put pressure on West Germany. Besides, uh, Mr. Trump no doubt has taken very little interest in Energiewende, but if he had, and if he understood what it was, he would understand that Germany is phasing out fossil fuels, you know, as, as soon as it can in its uh, energy transition to uh, to renewable sources and its adherence to the Paris climate agreement that uh, that the said Mr. Trump uh, decided to pull the US out of. So even were there to be a dependence, which is relatively minor, um, and, and also Germany has enormous gas storage facilities, the biggest in Europe. So, you know, it's very, it's very hard to see the circumstances under which Germany could be held hostage. But even if that were to be the case, this is a temporary condition which will be ended certainly by mid-century. Um, Peter, among the other things that Trump is reported to have said today uh, is a suggestion that the that that two percent of GDP that NATO members should be spending on defence uh, actually be doubled uh, to four percent. It, it is, of course, far from clear still that Trump actually understands how NATO's funding model works, but. Are we getting any sense yet of how seriously the other NATO leaders are taking Trump? Is there now just a certain amount of teeth gritting and eye rolling going on as people realise, look, we only have to put up with this nonsense for another two and a half years at worst? Uh, well, uh, the math doesn't quite work. It could be six and a half years, but I do think <laughs> that there's, uh, there is an element of we're going to have to ride this out. Uh, we're either going to watch... Uh, key institutions in the liberal democratic order, like NATO, like the World Trade Organization, effectively dismantled or sidelined and uh, rendered defunct, or we're going to have to just hold it together 
and uh, do things like trade deals that don't involve the United States, uh, make sure that our, our defense uh, arrangements are, are in order regionally, and then wait for some change. I, I, I don't think there's much of an appetite for just continuing to confront as if this is uh, real policy. The, the other thing, the other effect that this is having, well, ironically enough, NATO spent decades trying to stop the EU from developing its own active defense policy because it would be seen as a challenge to NATO, which which the US dominated. But one effect of this is a certain, you know, spiking up of the conversations about collective European defense uh, as, a, as a precaution, I'm sure, um, or as a contribution to a, a, a defense scenario which is going to look very different, whatever happens in the next few years. Just a final quick thought on this one, Peter. In that interregnum, the, the Trump... Uh Interregnum, the Trump interregnum, the Trump blip, the Trump glitch, whatever we're going to call it, of two and a half to, Lord help us, six and a half years. Is there a concern, however, that NATO's credibility might become somewhat eroded to the point where, for example, a president of Russia might decide to see, well, let's how serious, see how serious this Article 5 thing really is? Oh, I think there's a very serious concern about that. I mean, our Article 5 is the the foundational agreement within NATO. I mean, it's what makes it an alliance. It says if one member's attacked, it's as if all the members are attacked. And we've seen uh, what's playing out uh, in eastern Ukraine, where there are large numbers of ethnic Russians in this proxy war, uh, pretty clearly orchestrated by Russia itself. And uh, certainly in the Baltics, uh, where this idea that, you know, NATO is obsolete, uh, that doesn't have a lot of currency there. There are an awful lot of ethnic Russians in, in, in the Baltics. And uh, what would stop uh, an, an adventurous uh, Mr. Putin from uh, rolling in and, and bringing a proxy war there or maybe even a direct war if there's a feeling that that NATO is is not is no longer up to the commitment? Okay, well, let's move along slightly now and look at President Trump's other current winning friends and influencing people initiative, i.e. the escalating trade war with China. Further levies were announced yesterday, which, when added to the others already imposed, will mean that by the end of August, prices will have been raised on nearly half of everything the US imports from China, including in the latest batch tobacco, tyres, pet food and electronics. China has already imposed some retaliatory measures, amusingly targeted at Trump voters, including tariffs on Kentucky bourbons and Iowa soybeans. Uh, These are unlikely to be the last. Um, Isabel, at the risk of introducing a certain Groundhog Day element to this episode of Midori House, I'm going to ask you exactly the same question I asked you at the start of the last item. Um, Is there any discernible plan, strategy, idea of what he's doing at large here? Uh, Well, certainly none that is good for the United States, um, curiously enough. I I mean, the estimable Paul Krugman, on on whose judgment I tend to rely in these matters, has pointed out that Trump's tariffs, um, you know, were there to be a sensible trade war, which is a bizarre proposition, you would impose tariffs on finished goods, on on Mm -hmm. cars. Um, actually, most of Trump's tariffs are on intermediate goods and on the machinery uh, that, that you use to make goods, which means that you cannot impose those tariffs without damaging U.S. interests. So the bulk of his tariffs will damage U.S. interests quite severely. The retaliatory tariffs, are, are, as we've discussed before, have been targeted at his base. So, you know, the soybean farmers of the Midwest um, have seen their prices drop by 30% already. And, you know, the, 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 the retaliatory tariffs have been 
fairly uh, cool and, and calculating, but his appear to be just windmilling around the, the landscape. There was an amusing list of things you might not have known they import anyway, <laughs> uh, like, you know, badger hair and, um, and oddly shark's fin, which I thought was banned. But anyway, then they're now, they're now subject to tariffs. Um, but it, it doesn't look to me like a strategy. And there is no, um, there's no end game. There are no demands on the table. What does Trump want in return for, you know, easing this, um, this policy? That's not clear either. And there have been no talks for quite a long time. So there doesn't seem to be any way in the short term out of this, which I suspect means it's going to get worse. And, and Peter, I guess not, not wishing to make it sound like I'm just reading over and over again from the same list of questions, but again, again a variation on the first yeah. item. Do we understand yet that how China is regarding this? Are they regarding this as just something that will have to be managed for however long Trump lasts? Or are they having to think, do we need to start completely recalibrating our approach to the United States? Um, I think it's a little of both. I mean, I, I so I was just in Sofia, Bulgaria at this 16 plus one summit that China has turned into an event with Central and Eastern European countries. And there's a lot of talk there on the sidelines with Chinese officials about you know, the need to look for alternatives where they're dependent upon American sources. So, for instance, China has retaliated on American tariffs with tariffs on soybeans, they, on American soybeans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as people get wealthier in China, there's increased appetite for meat, a lot of pork is produced in China. They got to feed the the pigs. They can't grow enough soybeans. So they've been importing huge volumes from, from the U.S. And the directive has essentially gone out to Chinese state-owned companies to scour the earth looking for other places they can buy soybeans, including Ukraine, uh, Bulgaria. They've shifted heavily into the one place where there are large volumes like Brazil. So some of that's going on. I mean, at the political level, there's still the hope that and, and this is a similar hope in, in Brussels as well, that as the impact on the global supply chain that the U.S. relies on uh, begins to show the effects of these tariffs, American businesses, and they're already saying these things, but they'll start to act more strongly in demanding an end to this trade war. And if the stock market falls, uh, which is the one metric that Donald Trump seems to both understand and care about, uh, that that will create some pressure to end this. You know, lo- longer term, yeah, China does take the long view. They understand Trump's not going to be president forever. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, but they increasingly see themselves as, as you know, in control of their own destiny. They're, they're, they're much less dependent upon exports than they were a decade ago. Uh, there's a lot more service and and uh, ser- service sector and consumer spending that fuels economic growth in, in China. So they got a lot of different... Uh, ways they're reacting to this and they're and they're waiting and hoping for change. Um, Isabel, Donald Trump uh, is famously on record as having said that trade wars are good and easier to win, but isn't a trade war easier to win if you are China, which, to put it charitably, is perhaps slightly less susceptible to public opinion than any given president of the United States? Yes. I mean, I don't think China would say this is uh, going to be a whole lot of fun, but uh, but certainly China is in is in a reasonable position um, and not as as you say not as subject to public opinion. What I have noticed, though, is that it's precipitated a change in tone in China's deliberations with the European Union. And China's been actively looking to the EU, which it used to regard as a slightly kind of silly organization, I think, um, for 
uh, support in resisting Trump's attacks on the WTO and, and the attacks on the global trading order to the point that they actually proposed there should be a kind of common alliance against the United States, which the EU said, you know, thank you. But no, thank you. Um, on the other hand, Merkel did make some uncharacteristically nice noises about the opening of the Chinese market, um, almost on the day when the EU Chamber of Commerce in China complained about the lack of opening of the Chinese market. So, I mean, you can see kind of certainly shifts in political tone. Um, Merkel making extremely nice noises to Chinese envoys and rolling her eyes at the sight of, of Donald Trump arriving. Um it used to be that that China simply regarded the United States as what it was aiming for, and that was you know that was the one to beat. That was the that was the relationship that counted, and it's had this dual track policy. And Peter talked about sixteen plus one, which is kind of divide and rule policy, which you see elsewhere in China's theatre of diplomatic operations, and and you know buying up small countries to protect interests within the EU. So Greece will always vote against, for example, a, a, a motion. Uh, criticizing China on human rights because the Chinese have invested so enormously in Greece at a vulnerable moment for Greece. But now you see a, a bit of calibration of that idea that you can pretty much play as you like in Europe and it doesn't really matter. They're quite anxious that the European Union get over its troubles and stick together because it's the biggest trade partner, but also because it remains committed to a world that China needs. OK, well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton. Coming up next, how will Facebook, with its market capitalisation of $588 billion, survive a £500,000 fine? Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Isabel Hilton and Peter Goodman. Now, the reckoning has come, at least in the UK, for Facebook over its role in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The Information Commissioner's Office, on finding that Facebook had perpetrated two breaches of the Data Protection Act, imposed the maximum fine of £500,000, or roughly what Facebook takes in revenue every five minutes. Vexingly, the offences were deemed to have been committed in 2014 and 2015, before the the imposition of a new regime of fines which go up to 4% of any given company's global turnover, which in Facebook's case would have been nearer 1.4 billion quid. Um, so, Peter, if we can assume that 500 grand, which is 500 grand, but nevertheless that won't bother Facebook one way or the other, uh, will the judgment? Um, I think the judgment does matter to them in public relations terms. I mean, yeah, the money, it's a mosquito bite, if if that. But, you know, they have 1.5 billion users around the world. The user growth was starting to slow down uh, in the last few months of last year. It did a little bit better in the first part of this year. But, you know, they're very concerned that uh, many of us, I, I, I think, have 
gone from viewing Facebook as this uh, handy way to share photos of our children with our old, you know, college buddies to this kind of dark uh, world where there are bad actors uh, waiting around every corner to vacuum up our data and potentially harm us with it. And certainly the notion that this company has turned itself into the largest source of news for large numbers of people and has now effectively undermined democratic outcomes around the world, that is something that bothers Facebook from a from a business standpoint. And, uh, and there will be ramifications for that. Now, Isabel, what do you make of the steps that Facebook has either actually taken or has said it is taking in order to sort itself out? Are they anywhere near sufficient? I I think this is a story of of regulation just never catching up with the pace of digital evolution. Um, You know, we all know that Facebook lives on selling ads and we also know that those ads micro-target us so that if in another forum you search for a holiday cottage in Scotland, up pops on your Facebook feed adverts for holiday cottages in Scotland. You know, unrelated. The, the ones I like are when you get the ads for airfares to the place you're already in. Oh yes, there's a lot of that. <laughs> and more offers of the thing you've just bought on eBay. All of that is true. But you know, micro-targeting is clearly part of the business model. So how do you separate out micro-targeting um, for politics, which is part of the dark the dark side that Peter's talking about, and micro-targeting for commercial purposes. Now, you know, the, the regulators in the UK have, have tried to grapple with this um, over the, the question of whether uh, who's paid for the ad should be, should be publicly stated, as it is in printed literature for electoral purposes. But I think it, it's very hard to imagine it going far enough. And certainly the efforts that I've seen on Facebook to clean up its image have largely, I think, been rhetorical. I don't think anyone is terribly convinced that you won't find horrible things on Facebook any minute now if you look hard enough. I mean, I, I, I am, as I've said before in this space, a, a hardliner on this. I think Facebook and other social media platforms are publishers uh, and should be held to the same standards as any newspaper or magazine and should be made to take exactly the same amount of responsibility for anything that appears under that masthead. And if they, if they have to hire several million editors and fact-checkers to deal with it, that's their problem, not mine. Um, Peter, what regulation does it still need, like an organisation like Facebook, which has, as you pointed out yourself, with with its user base, become one of the most powerful organisations, possibly the most powerful privately owned organisation in human history. I mean, it seems pretty hard to imagine that it could be effectively regulated by a bunch of different nations applying different standards. Uh, it also seems naive to think that the market's going to sort it out. I mean, they're just so sophisticated and so fast moving. Uh, I mean, I think I think that there's a public consciousness that's still up for grabs. I mean, in terms of what's going to influence the politics and whether we're going to have a serious conversation about regulations or not. Because, you know, as Zuckerberg's gone around on his apology tour in the in the wake of, of Cambridge Analytica and these disclosures, he's essentially said, well, you know, look, we were this eager young startup, started it in my Harvard dorm room, and things just really got out of hand, and we're taking a hard look. And, and you know, we we now, I mean, we've known, those of us who've paid attention for, for years, that this none of this was an accident. This was directly out of their business model. They knew, in the same way that Google understood years ago that it wasn't just about search, it was about every crevice of our lives, that in getting us to share all this stuff, they were going to learn all sorts of things about us, and they could monetize that every which way. And that has not changed. I mean, that's built into their stock market value. So 
it, it, it's hard to imagine that this business changes substantially without uh, that idea, th- this notion, as you as you put it, that it's the, it's the platform for everything. You know, really getting deep into the psyche of, of voters in multiple countries and and Facebook. You know, of course, they've got the data about that too. I mean, they know what we think about Facebook. And you have to imagine <laughs> that that's uh, partially dictating their lobbying strategy, their public relations strategy. This is a tough one. I mean, a, a slightly leading question, Isabel, but it's a it's it's the bleak thought I always return to on this of that immense user base of Facebook's, what percentage of it do you think actually know what Cambridge Analytica even is? I, I should think about 0.1%. Um, and, and, you know, probably the bots know. Uh, but I, I think of the users, those who know, probably don't care because it's free. And, you know, the, the, the difficulty is there isn't a substitute for Facebook. And so many people find it extremely useful um, or indeed some find it enjoyable and they don't pay for it, they think. they just And they're not really that interested in the ways that they do pay for it without, without it being evident. Like with our democracy, for instance. For example, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's too complicated. It's too complicated a connection, I think, for most yeah. people. And if you were to, you know, accost a passerby and start talking about how to regulate Facebook, you know, they would they would call the police on you, I, I imagine. Well, finally tonight, uh, to Vancouver Island, specifically the insufferably named Artisan Gardens neighbourhood thereof, where city burgers have passed a bylaw forbidding outside play in the street, including such locally popular pastimes as skateboarding, hockey and chalk drawing. While not disputing the estimation of some who have assessed this as untowardly Scrooge-like, it does prompt the question of what workaday nuisances we think local authorities should come down harder upon. I have quite a long list, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, but, 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 but I'm selfless host that I am. Uh, I am going to cede the floor uh, to the guests. Uh, P- Peter, if, if you were empowered uh, to, to, to clean the streets where you live and work... Uh, both literally and metaphorically, how what, what would you start with? The very kind man who plays the accordion underneath my window, <laughs> uh, underneath my home office, uh, he's got to go. Yeah, that is, can't continue. Or he at least has to learn more songs. He seems to play the same song over and over again for four hours. And I occasionally I, I dream of running down there and offering him, you know, a large amount of money. Can you just play a different song or, at least? or, or, stop, or even or, go or, away? Or go away <laughs> or, or go. You, you, you can tell him the joke about the accordionist who goes shopping and leaves his accordion on the back seat of his car, and then he comes back and finds the window of his car's been smashed, and there's like a dozen accordions in there. <laughs> Um, is, Isabel, uh, who, who would you start? I mean, accordionists, I, I, I mean, I think in its in its place, I genuinely think it's a lovely instrument. I have many records I like very much that have accordions on them, but no, not, 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 not in public, not unsolicited. Well, I'm afraid my quiet street is utterly lacking in accordions, so I, I can't really compete with that. But the things that I would like to see banned are banned already, but they happen. You know, I live quite close to a quite a, you know, pretty park called Highbury Fields, and when there is a big event on Highbury Fields and the uh, publicly provided facilities are inadequate, I, I tend to find gentlemen, I use the term loosely, uh, relieving themselves in my front garden. Um, I also find taxis, uh, which are stationary, but with their engine running in my street. And um, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a killjoy, but I'd rather not breathe those semi-combusted fumes. On the other hand, I get quite annoyed um, 
around Highbury Fields, there is currently a, a fairly bitter conversation going on about the hoi polloi who come and um, like barbecues on Highbury Fields. I'm in favour of the hoi polloi on that one. I think. Where, where you know, are you on the riffraff? Um, yeah, well, you know, the, the, actually the worst riffraff event were, um, <laughs> were, were, I think, German football fans. Um, I have never seen so many discarded bottles um, uh, after a match where they couldn't get into Arsenal and the whole place was absolutely knee-deep in, in discarded beer bottles. So riffraff up to a point. The, the trouble is, I think, for most people, there's that, that thought we have in our heads of turning our immediate neighbourhood into our own personal Pyongyang and sort of hmm. banning everything thing that we don't like uh, but peter we're have have the if we assume they've gone too far in artisan gardens is there a definite line that you can't cross is there a way of separating what is antisocial behavior which should be um you know expunged by 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 force of law uh, and what is the stuff that we just have to learn to live with if we're going to live in a place with other people in it? I think if you're going to actually create legislation and ban something, there's got to be a pretty clear, you know, everyone regards this as a nuisance. It's a public health issue. It's a safety issue. And beyond that, I mean, if you live in a city, I, if, if you want to go build a cabin in the middle of Alaska, you know, knock yourself out. Uh, you can complain when anyone shows up within 100 miles. The rest of us live in communities. We live in societies. Unfortunately, we have we generally have to work this stuff out amongst ourselves without the government getting involved in every every dispute. Isabel, what do you think? Would, would you ban hopscotch and and hockey and skateboarding and chalk drawing in the street? I most certainly wouldn't. In fact, I would rather have you know the reasonably congenial sound of children enjoying themselves than than the sound of traffic roaring through. We don't have a lot of traffic in my street, and there, for certainly for a while, um, a number of kids used to used to play quite a lot of ball games in the street, and I was absolutely fine with that. Just no as, broken windows. Just as long as none of them brought an accordion, uh, obviously. <laughs> so accordions, I think we can agree on. I, I'm also, I know I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, umbrellas. Seriously, I would vote for literally anybody who would abolish them. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton, thank you for joining us at Midori House. Our researchers today were Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Lamici Okamoto and Paula Schulze. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 tomorrow. London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 